Davy Jones was a Wisconsin boy who started in the big leagues in 1901, shortly after he graduated from Dixon College. He played in the majors for 14 years, including three World Series with the Detroit Tigers, and in those years he was a member of one of the greatest outfields of all time, Ty Cobb in right field, Sam Crawford in center field, and Davy Jones in left field. I interviewed Davy in Milwaukee. Davy had made a considerable fortune as a druggist. The Joneses, Margaret and Davy, lived in a very nice apartment overlooking Lake Michigan. They had only been married about 15 years. They had gone together as sweethearts when they were in high school. But Davy wanted to be a ball player, and Margaret's father refused to let her see him anymore when he started in baseball because ball players were no good in those days. So they broke up, and later in life, when they were both in their 60s, their respective spouses died. Margaret's husband, the doctor, died. Davy's wife died, and they met each other quite by accident again in their 60s, and they got married. He was a sweetie pie who was always looking on the light side of things. Davy was a jolly elf. Did baseball players then have so much status like they do now? Was it as respectable a thing to do no. as it is now? <laughs> That's a funny story about that. You know, uh, Margaret and I were sweethearts in the high school. Her family were very religious. And when I got into baseball, uh, they wouldn't let her have anything to do with me. Because back in those days, you know, a ball player was just a bum too lazy to work. and. Uh, for that reason, I, uh, we kind of broke up. What did your mother and father think when you, after going to law school and everything, went and started playing professional baseball? Was that okay well, with them? Well, I'll tell you, they, uh, they were, it was the money factor more than anything else. You see, when I signed with this Milwaukee club, I got a bonus of $500, which if I worked on the railroad, I had to work six months. You jumped to Milwaukee? I jumped to Milwaukee. And of course, they were jumping back and forth then that the contract didn't mean anything. No, you see, Milwaukee was in the American League at that time, and that was an outlaw league. The American League was just forming then. That's right. That was their first year, 1901. I joined the team in Chicago on a Saturday, and it rained. There was a little Irishman that drove us out, and he had a bell, like a fire bell, like a... <laughs> on his bus, and streetcars and everything else had to stop for him. He'd go along, you know, and he'd be ringing that bell, and he'd go through funeral processions and everything, you know. He, he didn't care, he'd just lie, wanted to get it out that park. We sat in the uh, grandstand, and the first time I saw Comiskey, he was down near second base with his pants rolled up and a sponge, a couple of sponges and a pail, soaking up water around the bases to try to get the diamond in shape to play. That's the first time I saw Charlie Comiskey. He started from nothing, you know, and just a millionaire just through baseball. Well, anyhow, it uh, rained so that we couldn't play that day, so the next day we played a doubleheader. And the first game we played was probably the, one of the greatest games I've ever played in my life. You see, I'd never seen a major league park. I'd never seen a major league game. Here they come and take me right from the minor league and put the uniform on and put me leading off for the Were team. Were you nervous? No, it doesn't seem to be. And the second time at bat, I made the longest hit I ever made on the ballpark, over the right field fence. There was only one other uh, ball ever hit over that right field fence. 
Of course, the fences were farther away then. They were half a mile, seemed like. And the ball was deader. <laughs> the ball was deader. And uh, I made three catches in the outfield that every time I come in from the outfield, the crowd just stood up in the grandstand and cheered me. And from then on, you know, I, I never was a uh, bench warmer, only just when I was hurt or something. Fifteen years. Besides being a lawyer, are you a pharmacist too? Yes. I, I bought the store in 1910. Of course, a lot of the fans, you know, as soon as the game was over, they'd go down to the drugstore and have me draw them a soda, you know. <laughs> that was great, great fun for a lot of them. Sometimes you couldn't get the drugstore. I should think so. so. So my business uh, was very, very fine. What did you name the drugstore? David Jones Drug Company. Yeah, that's what huh? I thought you were. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I had five stores at one time. Really? We made more. I made as much money or more than I did playing baseball. And you went up in 1906 and then won, won three pounds, seven, eight, and nine. Uh -huh. How did the Detroit team treat you as you came up to them now? They treated me fine, but they didn't treat Cobb very good. Why did they treat Cobb so badly? Well, I'll tell you, Cobb, uh, he asked for it. You know, Cobb was a, had a rotten disposition. Cobb and Crawford and I had seven, eight, and nine berths, lower berths. I stood there and Cobb took a gun out of his pocket, put it under his pillow. Well, I thought, God, that's funny. The guy carrying a gun around with him, ball clear, never saw it. I said, what are you carrying that gun for? He says, well, he says, some of these damn Yankees get fresh with me, I'll show them why I'm carrying this gun. And there was uh, two or three other players stood there, you know, and heard it. They said, well, yeah, that guy carrying a gun around with him, what the hell. And he was everything for Cobb. He didn't care for anybody but Ty himself. He didn't care anything about his mother, his father. Well, I don't know about his father. Uh, you knew that uh, Cobb's mother murdered his father, didn't you? No. When we were down there in 1906, Cobb went up to the, his little town, you know, for the trial. She was arrested for murder. The way the story goes, that uh, he was kind of suspicious of her. And uh, he's supposed to go away on a trip. He sneaked back, you know, and he was looking through the window and she shot him. She thought he was a burglar. That was the excuse, anyhow. But she was acquitted on that fact. His life was kind of tragic, thing of that kind, you know. It kind of hangs on a fellow. Cobb always says that during that spring, the regulars treated him very badly. That they broke his bats, that they threw water they, on I'll him. tell you, they did a lot of dirty tricks on him, but I'll tell you, when we were uh, training there at Augusta, we used to leave our glove and our shoes out at the uh, little room there, right adjoining the uh, groundkeeper's home. And uh, we went out there one day, and Cobb missed his shoes and glove. I think that um, Killian or some of those guys hit him on him. Were they kidding around with him or were they seriously? Well, they didn't like him. So, well, anyhow, and he went out there uh, and he couldn't find his shoes or glove. Well, he accused the, uh, the groundkeeper's wife, the colored woman, of stealing him. He called her a lot of names that he shouldn't have. Charlie Schmidt spoke up and he says, you're no man. He says, you wouldn't call any woman a Named like that, even if she is colored. Cobb says, none of your damn business. But he says, I'm making my business. So they went to it. The Cobb had scratched Smitty's face and it bled a little. So the papers came out and said, uh, Cobb trimmed Smitty and won this fight. 
He couldn't lick one side of Spitty, you know. Spitty was Spitty a was bull, a you know. Man. So Spitty, he says, uh, when he read this piece in the paper, he says, well, I'll show these guys down south that he can't lick me. He says, before we get out of the south, I'll show that guy. So nothing was said until we got over to Meridian, Mississippi. We played an exhibition game there on our way around north. So Smitty walked over to Cobb, but he said, damn it, I'm going to give you that licking, I promise you. <laughs> so they squared off, uh, Cobb threw his glove down, and Smitty hit him <laughs> over the left eye, and he knocked him about 10 feet square on his back. And Smitty just hit him this once. So Cobb got up on his knees. Cobb held up his hand, and he says, I got enough. Cobb is always reputed to be a man who made himself a great ball player by hard work. That's wrong. Absolutely wrong. He didn't. He practiced less and he worked less uh, than any, any ball player on our ball club. It was natural with Cobb. Cobb was a natural ball player and he was uh, looking to take every advantage. As far as condition is concerned, that guy uh, didn't know what it was to train. You know, when we go in morning practice, and uh, we'd come in and, uh, well, once in a while we'd eat a sandwich or something like that. Do you know what he would eat? A whole apple pie and drink three or four bottles of Coca-Cola. That would be a lunch. I know that one day um, he came in late. We'd had our practice, fielding practice, and uh, Moriarty and I were in uh, the clubhouse. And as we were in there, Cobb came in. He had been there to practice all. So Moriarty made the remark, he says, Jesus, it's nice to be a star. He says, you don't have to come to practice, uh, the rest of us. One thing led to another, and finally they went at it. Boy, and I jumped in between them, and one of them hit me back of the side of the head and pretty near knocked me out. <laughs> and I really got the worst of it. Go on. Well, that's all there was to it. I guess uh, I, I was the loser. <laughs> he, didn't, he didn't have anybody on his side at all. <laughs> I don't think he even had his wife on his side for that. I don't know. He a very immoral guy, you know, chasing the women. You know, God, he wouldn't care who they were. Boy, he had an awful reputation of the women there. We were in the Euclid Hotel in Cleveland. And there was uh, two young girls, two sisters, there visiting. They wanted to stop there because they wanted to meet the ball players. Pretty good-looking girls, pretty healthy-looking girls, about 21, 22, something around there. Come, I guess, met them. Of course, the uh, house detective was wise to these fellows, you know, going up to this girl's room, you see. So he was up there on the hall, you know, watching. Finally, Cobb went up. This detective asked him where he was going. Your room isn't on this floor. Cobb says, not your damn business. They got in an argument and they finally got into a fight. Cobb took out a knife and cut the guy in two or three places. Oh, he cut him bad. The guy was in the hospital for about three weeks. He had a hard time getting out of that. Cost him about 10,000 bucks. Of course, we get a lot of calls, you know, these hero worshippers, you know, gals call up and want to make a date, a lot of letters and telegrams, everything like that, you know, just like any ball player. And probably back in those days, I was a fairly good-looking guy, too, and carried myself on the ball field and kind of fascinated a lot of the uh, gals, you know, that come up and watch the uh, players. 
right that gets a stack of letters I know down there I never paid attention to them from high school girls that see your picture on a tablet or something like that, you know, and they'd like that picture and want to correspond with him. From all over the United States, even from Canada, I got them from Canada. I got a call at midnight. I just got into bed. I just got my pajamas on. What uh, kind of a manager was Huey Jennings? Was he a good manager? Now, Jennings was drunk pretty all the time. You know, he didn't even know what was going on in the ball field. He didn't know our signals. He, he'd come out there sometime, he'd be in a stupor. And he'd raise cane, you know, and anybody did anything, he'd call them names, you know. And, uh, although Jennings never does that but once to me, and I told him if he ever called me that again, I'd knock his block off. Mm. I chased him out of a clubhouse in Chicago without anything on him, knew him. What? <laughs> yeah, it's in the shower bath. And he made this remark about me, and I said, you're pretty mad, you didn't call me that. And I, when I hit him, he started to run, and I had to run out of the clubhouse, oh, bare naked. <laughs> the language that he used to some of those ball players, Crawford was going to choke him one day on the bench, you know. He jumped on to Crawford for misjudging a ball. He said he misjudged it, but he didn't. Cobb was the only one that he never ever said anything to because Cobb would have been like a cat, you know. He'd have jumped at him in a minute if he ever said anything to him. He never said a word to Cobb. He was afraid to. How come they kept him as manager for so many well, years? Well, because the team was successful. You see, the, he came there in 1907. They won three straight pennants. We had a team that, uh, that every player on the club knew just as much about the game and what to do as the manager did. Did you ever see Germany Schaefer steal first, Tron second base? I was on third base and scored this run when <laughs> it happened. Really? Uh, what was the occasion for something? Well, here the score was a tie. Two men out in the ninth inning. Cobb was up to bat. When the first ball was pitched, Schaefer let a yell out of him and he went to second to draw the throw from the catcher so I could score from third. But of course the, uh, the catcher refused to throw it. Schaefer let a yell out of him and he tore back to first like a wild Indian. From second? From second, see? And he dove into first, head first, you see? <laughs> and nobody there, of course. And he did that, you know, to, to thinking that the, uh, this pitcher would be confused and would throw the ball over there with nobody there to feel it. What happened? Well, nothing. Uh, we were all amazed, you know, at the play. Even I was on third, you know. I didn't know what he was pulling at the, at the time. And, of course, the crowd and everybody yelling and everybody was confused. So the pitcher got in, and the next ball they pitched, he stole the second again. And this time, the catcher threw the second. See, and I scored the winning run. He stole second, and he stole back to first, and he yeah, stole and second. He, and he, when he come to the official score, he says, I'm entitled to three stolen bases and one attempt. <laughs> but he was funny, uh, boy, old boy. One day in uh, Cleveland, there was a couple German comedians stopping there. And, of course, Schaefer all us mixed up with that kind of gang anyhow. And as a matter of fact, he did get on vaudeville stage one winter, you know. Schaefer was up in their room, and, of course, they had all their equipment, their false whiskers and so forth. Schaefer said, say, listen, he says, can I borrow those whiskers? I said, sure. So uh, <laughs> we went out to the ballpark, and the first time Schaefer went up to bed, he put his whiskers on. <laughs> 
<laughs> I, I was on first base, and there was E.G. following me in the batting order, and I was on first base, and everybody started to laugh and hoot, and I, well, of course I didn't know that he had them there, and nobody else did. The umpire didn't know what they were laughing at because he couldn't see the switchers on. Finally, when he got into the box, you know, of course, the, the umpire saw these whiskers on him. He said, Shaver, go and take those whiskers off. He says, this is no comedy, this is a ball game. <laughs> well, he was always putting stunts like that. <laughs> yeah, he just kept uh, life in the team all the time, doing something, you know. And cracking jokes, you know, he, he was really funny, naturally funny. We were playing in Chicago. The first year I was with the team in 1906, Red Donna, who was pitching for us, and Doc White was pitching for the White Sox. Good pitcher. Yeah, Doc was a good left-hand pitcher. Come the ninth inning, score was 2-1 to one in favor of uh, the White Sox. A man on first, and the pitcher up to, uh, turned to bat, who was Red Donahoe, and one of the worst hitters in the league. Well, Red used to like to get up there and take his swings, you know, anyhow, you know. So Bill Armour, who was our manager at that time, asked Schaefer if he was all right. Schaefer had been out of the game for about a month, and uh, Schaefer says, yeah, sure. He says, against Doc White, he says, I'd like to hit against him. Donna, who was there swinging his club, you know, ready to get up to bat. Schaefer said to Red, he says, uh, manager wants me to hit for you. Red looked at him and says, who in the hell are you going to hit for me? <laughs> he folded his arms and he sat there, you know, madder than a wet hand, you know, because they took him out to put it in the pinch hitter for him. So Schaefer walked over in front of the grandstand, took off his cap, and he said, ladies and gentlemen, you are now looking at Herman Schaefer, better known as Herman the Great. <laughs> the greatest pinch hitter in the world. He says, I'm going up there and I'm going to hit the ball in that left field bleachers and win this ball game. And finally he uh, turned around and he says, thank you. <laughs> he walked up to the plate and of course they all give him the raspberry, you know. He never hit over two or three home runs in his life, you know. The, so <laughs> the second ball that Doc White pitched, he did just exactly what he said he was going to do. He hit it in the left field bleachers. Well, boy, oh boy, you ought to have seen him. He stood at the plate, you know, until he saw the ball going into the bleachers, and he tore down at first as hard as he could run, and he slid into first and head first. <laughs> and he pulled off his cap, and he says, Schaefer leads at the quarter. <laughs> and he tore down a second and slid into second. <laughs> he says, Schaefer leads at the half. <laughs> when he slid into the plate, he turned around and he says, Schaefer wins by a nose. <laughs> and he walked over in front of the grandstand and took off his cap and he says, Ladies and gentlemen, he says, I want to thank you for your attention. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was one of the funniest things I think that I ever saw in baseball. And of course, it's so unusual today, you know, they'd think of a guy was crazy if he did that. But in those days, you know, you could pull stuff like that, and, and the crowd enjoyed it. Donna was still sitting there just like a stone image, see? His arm falling, <laughs> sitting right next to him. He came up to Red. He says, Red, he says, how'd you like that? Not a goddamn bit better than I'd have done myself. <laughs> well, the funny part of the whole thing was, 
But we went back to Detroit the next day. The first time Schaefer came up to bat, a fellow named Joss, Eddie Joss, a big lanky fellow with a sidearm there, and Schaefer couldn't hit him with a paddle. Schaefer came up the first time, and of course everybody in the grass said, hooray Schaefer, you know, for winning the game the day before. Give him a great send-off. Well, he took three swings and struck out. <laughs> Second time he came up to bat, and of course it was still a hooray Schaefer, but not quite as much of an ovation as he got the first time. He struck out again. Third time he came up to bat, no commotion at all, no ovation. <laughs> <laughs> so, come to the, uh, the fourth time at bat, Schaefer didn't want to get up to bat again. So Schaefer walks up to me and says, if you get on that base, he says, I'm going to bet you over I looked at Schaefer, started to laugh, and, and I did get on, see, and Schaefer had to get up the fourth time, you see, after striking out three times. And of course the crowd then, take the bum out! <laughs> I tell you, how, you know, that, that's the baseball crowd, you know. Take him out, take the bum out. And, well, that shows you how quick a, a guy can turn from being a hero to a bum. And it's absolutely true, every word of it. Now, you, you'd laugh at this because this is funny. And you would think that anything like this could happen in a major league game. We were playing a game in uh, Pittsburgh, and we had a pitcher, left-handed pitcher, the name of Jimmy St. Brain. This is when I was with the Cubs. Jimmy was a left-handed pitcher and a right-handed hitter. And he couldn't hit a foul off these pitchers, you know, the way he hit. The manager, Seeley, says, Jimmy, he says, why don't you turn around and hit left-handed? He says, you don't even make a foul hitting right-handed. You can't hit right-handed. Turn around and hit left-handed. See what you can do. Uh, he was a good pitcher. He had a lot of stuff, and boy, at the bat, you know, he was a mess. Well, anyhow, he turned around, hit left-handed. And darn if he didn't hit the ball. He hit it down to Wagner. And instead of running the first, he ran the third. <laughs> <laughs> no, you wouldn't think that could happen, but if I hadn't seen it, I wouldn't believe it either. Well, I asked Wagner after that, I said, well, when you saw that guy running to third, he says, what did, what did you think when you went through? He says, I didn't know where I wanted to throw the ball, because he had me all mixed up too. We had dumb guys, crazy guys, and we had well-educated guys. I mean, we had a, a different assortment, you know. It's yeah. just like any walk of life. You take any profession. You take a bunch of, say, 50 lawyers, and you'll find all kinds of guys some among them. Some are dumber than the fell, and others are smart. You know, you doctors are the same way. Half of the doctors that are practicing today are just a lot of quacks. <laughs> I'd get prescriptions from some of those doctors that I wouldn't even fill. There's a lot of dope fiends, and, but there are some fine guys and some good doctors, and I really uh, depend on them a good deal. Everybody does. Yeah. It's just like ball players. You'll find good ones. Now, you take Matheson, who was a prince of a guy, as smart as a whip. He was a well-educated fellow, high-class guy, and a great pitcher. Boy, oh boy. One day in Chicago, I'll never forget it as long as I live, 
I was up to bat with three men on bases and one run to tie, and I never saw such pitching in all my life. You know, he he had a nice curve, and then he had that fadeaway ball, and that was his favorite. But of course, I was over the plate, you know, looking for that fadeaway. But you know that with three men on bases, that guy pitched me five curve balls on an inside corner, and I couldn't do a thing with them but foul them, every one of them. Five, one right off the other. And every one was a strike. I never saw such perfect pitching in all my life as he did that day. He didn't have such terrible speed, did he? Well, he was pretty fast. He was. Oh, yes. He, he wasn't uh, nothing like Johnson or Waddell or a pitcher like that or Cy Young. But he had good speed. He was fast. But old Cy Young. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, that is a story about Cy. I, knew, I was always bunning on him because he was a rotten fielder. Oh, yeah. And he's a big, clumsy guy, you know, and <laughs> I drive him crazy, bunning on one side and on the other. Uh, <laughs> uh, he never knew what to do. What to do. <laughs> you know, I would lead off the, uh, this game, and bing, and I hit it back at him and hit him on the ankle. <laughs> and the ball bounced out in left field. Well, Sai si jumped and he grabbed his foot, you know, and he whirled around two or three times on one leg. And oh, God, I run down first base laughing my head off at it. All these pitchers that you saw, which one is the best pitcher that you Oh, I picked Johnson. No doubt about it. Oh, there's no question about it. And I hit against most all of these good pitchers, too Walsh and Joss, Vic Willis. Boy, he had the biggest curveball I ever saw. Are there any pitchers at all around today that can compare with those pitchers? Well, I would say that uh, Kopak would compare pretty well with uh, Rube. Because Rube, boy, he was a big, powerful guy. And boy, he had that ball like that big around on it. But you know, it's a funny thing. He couldn't beat the Detroit team hmm. with all that stuff. This was 1907. They sent Rube ahead to Detroit to rest up. Rube was registered at the hotel, but nobody knew where he was. They couldn't find him. And <laughs> he wasn't in his room, and they didn't know where he was. Well, about 10 o'clock in the morning, there was a guy came in from Orchard Lake and uh, told Connie Mack that they thought that Rube was out there fishing. Connie uh, hired a car, so they went out to Orchard Lake inquired out there and they finally saw a boat out in the middle of the lake. It was anchored out there, but apparently nobody in it. So they thought, well, uh, gosh, maybe he's in that boat out there. So they took a chance. <laughs> they got another boat and they rode out there. And sure enough, here, Rube was stretched out in the bottom of the boat, sound asleep, an empty bottle of whiskey and a little string of fish. <laughs> <laughs> this was about 10, 11 o'clock in the morning. The sun beating down on him, and here he was sound asleep. They said, that boat. They finally got him, and they brought him in, and he pitched a corking game. We only beat him. Donovan beat him two to one. Yeah, we had a tough time beating him. How good a pitcher was, Rue? Oh, boy, he had the stuff. Gee, Whitaker. Boy, he could burn him through there. As fast as Walter Johnson? No, I don't think so. No, I don't think he was quite as fast as Waller. Still, you know, Rube had uh, an awful lot of speed. He had a better curveball, a sharper curveball than Johnson did. Johnson was uh, more of a bender. 
But the best you saw was Walter Johnson. Boys, there's no question about it. As a matter of fact, I was the first big league player he pitched to. I almost was the leadoff. Yes. That was my specialty. So you were the first big league player Walter Johnson ever That's faced. Right. Yeah. What did you think of that fastball coming in there? <laughs> did he strike you out? No, no, he, uh, I hit a ball I just down to the shortstop and they threw me out. Although uh, I never did have too much trouble with Johnson. No, Walter was a, a grandpa, one of the nicest guys I ever met. Did you ever see Willie Keeler play? Keeler? Oh, a lot of time. Did you? Yeah. Was he as good as they say he is? Oh, yeah, a corkhead player. Little fellow. Yeah. And he didn't chop up, you know, he didn't hit this way. He wouldn't hit a ball. I don't suppose he ever made a home run in his life, but uh, he could uh, hit him where the aid is, as he used to say. Yeah. I hit him with the aid. Where would you put Willie Mays among the great outfielders? Well, Willie Mays, of course, is a great outfielder. He's a great ball player. No question. Would you really rank him up? Yeah, he, I would rank him with the uh, speaker. And with a competitive player, I'd pick Al Chase. Not Ty Cobb? No. Now that surprises me. Al Chase. No. Was he a no, great first he, baseman, as they say? He was better than they say. <laughs> he, he was the greatest competitor I ever saw. You know, it's a funny thing. I know I made that statement uh, to newspaper men, and it printed. And of course, a lot of them would say, well, gee, you played with Cobb. And, against Lajewey and you played against Wagner and you played against all of these fellows and you've seen all of them play, well, why, why would you pick Chase? Well, for this reason, that guy was uh, could make plays on that infield that nobody else could even come close making. Yeah. Oh, he, oh boy, he would bounce around that infield like a rubber ball. When he played first base, he'd play right field and beat you to the first base. When the first time we saw Chase, he just joined the uh, Yankees, and Cobb hit a ball down along the foul line, back of first. Chase went over, and he grabbed it, and back to first, and he beat Cobb to the bag. Cobb came back to the bench, and oh, he was almost crying. He stole this base hit off away from him. <laughs> he says, a lucky, lucky guy. Did he ever see such a lucky guy? God, he, the guy wouldn't make a play like that in a thousand years again. He says, and they had to make it against me. He was crying, you know. And next time he came up, Bush was on first, and Cobb hit a ball down to his right, you know, when it started out into right field. Chase goes out there, and he grabs that, and down to second, and back to first, and he had a double play on it. <laughs> Cobb was fit to be tied, stealing two base hits in one game all over the medley. Cobb came on, he was sitting in the bench. He's sitting out with his head down, and Finally, he raised his head and he says, you know, I don't think that guy is lucky. I think he's a damn good ball player. <laughs> and I used to try to pull Bunsen. You know, you, you just couldn't pull anything on the guy. He would just outguess you all the time. That's a funny thing because there's always been this question about Chase's honesty. Yeah, so yeah he was crooked as hell. That was, that was the main thing against him. That's the reason that everybody was down on him. He was... Uh, sent from the uh, uh, the Yankee team on that account because he was cheating the players and he cheated cards and dice, he had loaded dice and he, he'd do anything. Oh, he's just a crook. He was mixed up in that Black Sox deal. Yeah. Uh, he would uh, take money to throw games when he was with Cincinnati. Chase uh, died a miserable life too. 
And I felt sorry for the guy. I, uh, too bad, you know, that a guy, a great ball player, well, even Cobb, you know, Cobb could have been an awfully popular fellow. But uh, boy, everybody despised him. His personality was rotten. <laughs> Cobb was looking out for himself. He, and uh, one year, <laughs> we started out, I don't remember what year it was, 1910 or 11. Both Crawford and I were hitting like fools, you know, to starting off in the spring of the year, and he was in a slump. <laughs> he wouldn't talk to either one of us because we were hitting and getting the, uh, in the limelight, you know, and getting the publicity, and he wasn't getting it, you know, and he wouldn't talk to either one of us, either on or off the field. <laughs> Playing to the side of two uh, fellows like Cobb and Crawford, you're a good deal like... Um, a member of the chorus in a grand opera where there's two prima donnas. Yes, I can <laughs> imagine. The, they get in the limelight, you see, and they get the publicity and so forth. But everybody has been good to me, and I've had everything that I wanted, and I've enjoyed life. Uh, and baseball, of course, give me the uh, help when I needed it. Independently wealthy, I've got everything. I can, I'll never be able to spend the money that I got. I lost a lot. <laughs> I lost pretty much a million dollars during that crash in 29 or 30. Oh, God, I, I pretty much went to the bottom. But I've lived a very wonderful life. 